0: BET is the global meeting place for the education community. A trusted brand with more than 30 years of heritage, the BET series promotes the discovery of knowledge and technology to enhance lifelong learning.
1: Hello! Aruba, a Hewlett-Packard enterprise company, is the global leader in secure, intelligent edge-to-cloud networking solutions that use AI to automate the network while harnessing data to drive powerful business outcomes. With Aruba ESP or Edge Services Platform and as-a-service options, Aruba takes a cloud-native approach to helping customers meet their connectivity, security and financial requirements across campus, branch, data centre and remote worker environments, covering all aspects of wired, wireless LAN and wide area networking. To learn more, visit Aruba at www.arubanetworks.com.
2: You cannot innovate all by yourself. You can, you can invent a different practice, you can try it out. That's okay, and that's, and that's the way to begin. But you have to get allies within schools, within management, and then get other teachers, other schools to replicate, to innovate on your innovation. And this is the way you get people around changing the school itself.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to the EdTech podcast. This week, we are back with our What Matters in EdTech series, season two, and this time looking at innovation. We talk about why innovation is so important, how to create the space and skills for innovation, and how to measure innovative impact, including by asking questions such as, how much time have I saved as a result of my actions?
0: It's often better to kind of take a few steps back and say, well, actually, what are the high level objectives? Because suddenly you realise that maybe actually there's a different there's a different way to skin this <laughs> technological cat, for want of a better phrase.
3: You know, the fact that all these exams are cancelled, the fact that universities are not relying on SAT scores at the moment to admit students is a huge opportunity for us to do things like develop alternative modes of assessment, to test that blended models in education, and so much more. So I hope that we can take uh, the current crisis as an opportunity.
4: an organisation that would uh... be a... in NIE, I identify who are the innovators among us. So these are the people that uh, will constantly come to me and say, Sam, I have got a great new idea. And uh, they are always on my email list and we always have coffee. And these are what we call the pedagogical development and innovation leaders.
1: A big shout out to BET for supporting this series, Aruba for supporting this episode, and to our fantastic guests for their thoughtful insights on this topic. Okay, here we go please can you introduce who you are and what you do?
3: Sure. I'm Raya Bishahri. I'm the founder and CEO of All Academy. All Academy is an award-winning organization. Through online and offline programs, we teach students all of the powerful skills, mindsets, and values that are often missed out on traditional school curriculum. We are also working on building alternative models of schooling that are far more relevant for the 21st century world.
1: That's amazing what what a great elevator pitch it's so encouraging when people can describe what they do in in a succinct matter of time, <laughs> so it doesn't always work out like that and in terms of the people that join your programs, is that international or is it more local?
3: So yeah, our headquarters are here in the United Arab Emirates in dubai, although we are we also have a presence in Canada, and we've engaged with students and schools from all kinds of backgrounds. That's one of the advantages of being here in Dubai. You get to work with British schools or Indian schools, American schools, international IB schools. We've coordinated and worked with tens of thousands of students in the region through our programming.
0: So my name's Simon Wilson. I'm the CTO for Aruba in the UK and Ireland, not global just yet, although that's an aspiration. Um, and what do I do? Well, as my role as CTO for Aruba, I spend most of my time at the beginning of our journey with our customers, uh, sharing our strategy and our vision, listening to their challenges, and figuring out how we can make the technological innovations that we've developed uh, solve their particular business problems. Uh, we talk a lot about the art of the possible,
1: art of the possible, and everyone can, um, I think, benefit from that way of thinking because you you can always do more than you think you can usually.
0: Exactly. I mean, a lot of of people, it's you don't know what you don't know. So by listening to customers, we, you know, we find so much about their businesses and their business challenges, which helps us to innovate our products. And when they hear about our innovation, it helps them think about different ways to do things within their businesses. So it's a very collaborative conversation.
2: Hi, everybody. I'm Luciano Meira. I'm a professor of psychology at the Federal University of Pernambuco. There I teach and research about the learning sciences, and that's been going on for about 30 years. And 10 years ago, I co-founded an EdTech, the Recife's Tech Park, Posto Digital, or Digital Harbor. And it's an ed tech based on gamification and digital games for education. So I'm both an
4: academic and an entrepreneur. My name is Samson, and I am the head of the Center for Innovation and Learning at the National Institute of Education in Singapore. We are an institute of the Nanyang Technological University. Just a little bit more about our center. We are basically, a center consists of a number of specialists. We do not, our primary goal is not about research, but we work very closely with our faculty in bringing about innovation in learning. We have a few teams, specialists over here in our centre. We have uh, what we call the learning strategists. Traditionally, you probably know them as uh, instruction designers, but uh, we don't call them instructional designers over here because of the kind of work that they are doing, which is very different from traditional instructional designers. So, What they do is that we endeavour to create impactful learning experiences through the applications of what we call human-centered design approach and sensible use of data in guiding pedagogical design. Another team that also plays a very important part and they work very closely with our learning strategies is what we call the learning technologies, probably a, a common term. In some places, is known as education technologies. So what they do is that they review the possible technological options to our learning solution And they'll propose and provide the best uses of technology to meet teaching and learning needs of our our faculty members. Last but not least, we have a very important uh, team. Uh, We call them the Digital Media Specialists. Basically, what they do is they serve as a collaborative bridge between our uh, our stakeholders by using their expertise in media production, digital media production, I mean, to communicate abstract ideas via the means of audiovisual media yeah so we have uh, three big groups over here, and that's what we do
1: now you've got to know our guests a little. I thought we could mix things up this week by front loading all their recommendations on innovative thinking to get your brain wearing before we get into the interviews. Are there any individual thinkers that inspire you around this subject as well?
3: Absolutely, I think definitely two people i would a few people I would mention one uh, Mark Prensky. Uh, Mark Pransky is on our advisory board and you might already know of him. He's a thought leader and advocate for reform and moonshots in education. And his philosophy is all about education for what he calls positive civilization level change. So changing what it means to be educated away from that academic definition Mm. towards a definition where being educated means about being empowered to better yourself and better the world through that process. And Pransky has a number of books that, you know, listeners can check out on this topic. Another one is Tony Wagner. You know, he has a book called Creating Innovators, and he's done an excellent job creating a framework and analyzing what it is that makes innovators in today's world and working backward into the kind of teaching that results into creating innovators. The third thinker or book I will put out there is my co-founder, Ron Roberts. He has an excellent book called Cosmic Citizens and Moonshot Thinking, Education in an Exponential Era, and you can find it on Amazon as well as ebook or physical. And it's an excellent blueprint of what needs to change in education and how. And he also has a lot of very well-fleshed out case studies of activities and sessions and uh, programs that we've done in the past that, you know, with the resource of the books, teachers can actually replicate in their own schools and in their own classrooms as well.
0: What resources do I recommend to inspire people in this space? That's a very interesting question. Um, I suppose don't be constrained by uh, traditional thinking about the way you've done things. Give yourself space. You know? Don't try and think about how you will achieve something. Try and figure out what it is that you need to achieve. Um, you know, Maybe take a step back. Um, some of the less interesting conversations we have with customers are where they come to us having already decided exactly how they're going to do something. And sometimes that's entirely right, but it's often better to kind of take a few steps back. The first thing to say is innovation can come from absolutely anywhere. Um, I often find that the best ideas come from the people on the shop floor, <laughs> the people who are dealing with the challenges on a day to day basis. You know, in healthcare, it might be the, the healthcare visitor that has to go to people's houses. No, it might be the receptionist that has to welcome visitors into the building. It's it's the people at the coalface. I think that's where the most interesting innovations in use cases come from. And interestingly, some of the innovations or the ideas they come up with aren't big ideas. They're small ideas. But if you can solve 10 of these little ideas, then suddenly that can have a huge impact on the overall business. So I think innovation can come from absolutely anywhere. Um, And I guess... A book I return to quite often, um, it, it's a very old book, actually. It's a marketing book. It's called The 22 Immutable Laws of Marketing. It's by two gentlemen called Jack Reese and Jack Trout. Uh, and it was written to explain different marketing approaches. But the reason I like to look at it is because it helps me think in different ways. Um, so uh, I, I like to return to that particular book. So like I said, it kind of helps me refresh my, my thought processes quite a lot.
1: What's your own relationship with innovation? So, how did you get onto this track I suppose? And, you know, how has that relationship evolved over time?
4: That's an interesting question. Yeah, the the truth of the matter is that I I wasn't trained uh, and my doctoral thesis was never in learning sciences or education technology the same. My interest has always been and that has gone into my dissertation is to study about adapting to changes and uh, educational reform and changes. And uh, the focus was very much on human, about the stakeholders, the students, the teachers, the parents, how they uh, deal with all these kind of changes, in, uh, whether it's a curriculum or reform. And we always find that uh, um, when it comes to innovation in education systems, and we find that there is a theory that fits in very well, which I still use today when I look at the how to go about uh, undertaking and making innovation work. It's by Everett Rogers uh, in the 80s. He talks about this idea, or this model of diffusion of innovation. I'm not sure whether any listeners over here have come across this theory. It looks like a normal distribution curve, right? And he says that there are five different types of groups of people when it comes to diffusion of innovation. He talks about what he calls the, the innovators. Innovators are very, very small and very precious when it comes to innovation. You probably see that in any population, right? About three to five percent, and these are the people uh, that you 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 don't tell them about uh, uh, new things. These are the people who come and tell us about what the new stuff is that what what we should be doing, yeah, to make things different. And these are the people who have what we call the divine dissatisfaction about things that's happening all around us. So these are the innovators that will come. And the second group of people who are very important to uh, uh, innovation would be what we call the early adopters. Right? Again, not large in numbers, uh, but these are the curious people who talk a lot and right, work very well with innovators. you probably you will see about another 7-8% of this in the population. And finally, of course, a larger number, the next group would be the early majority. And then there's another group. You look at them as the late majority and then finally you have uh, a small, uh, well, sizable group towards the end, probably about 10%, what we call the laggards. No matter what good things you give to them, they, they'll refuse to change. <laughs> so, so what Roger talked about is that you must be able to identify within the population who are this group of people. I'm not saying about that you need to pigeonhole people that way. But I think in the practical way of looking at innovations we, we look at it from that point of view so I take a very realistic and pragmatic approach when we, uh, when we talk about innovation so it's very quickly whichever organization I work with uh, including in NIE I identify who are the innovators among us.
1: I love that because I suppose there's a temptation when we're all so incredibly busy to close off from new inbound ideas as a sort of attack on our day-to-day to-do list, whereas actually I suppose some of it is about creating a time or a a structure where, you know, you can listen to these innovators and their ideas and entertain them and then think about which ones are worth kind of pursuing.
4: Yeah, that's right, yeah. The central part about any innovation in any organisation – uh, the people, uh, you can bring the best and shiniest technology in place. Uh, if people not willing, uh, not excited, and they don't see the point of uh, those innovations, it will just fall flat. This is coming from experience and coming from reading of, uh, other organizations' experience, both in education and many different sectors. So, getting people to know this one part, getting people to be excited—that's that even more important. Getting people into moving into action need to galvanize that kind of uh, ground support for any kind of innovation to become sustainable and scalable. I just briefly mentioned about Professor George Siemens' work uh, earlier. I, I think I need to emphasize a, a little bit more about his work, about connectivism. And I, I think I, I didn't do enough justice to talk about the importance and the influence in education about his work. And I would, I would like to uh, recommend it for the listeners to, to take a look, dive a little, little bit deeper and maybe do a Google search. He has done a lot of pioneering work in data analytics, uh, learning analytics especially. And he's coming up with more research in the use of AI in education. Uh, again, he's not only a researcher looking into this. We have been collaborating with him and a few others in this circle to look at AI in education. I'm tasked uh, the working committee that's uh, looking at uh, how NIE go about doing that. So he, he's very much involved uh, in, with us in, in that kind of endeavor. And I, I just want to recommend that more uh, of our listeners perhaps pay a bit of attention in, in, in his work and uh, read more about
1: that. Innovation is integral to us as humans, it's what distinguishes us from a constant dreary plodding. It's certainly not a linear process. But without it, we would be stuck in a present with all our present problems and no obvious way out. So how do you get innovation started? And this episode is all about innovation. So I was wondering what your relationship with innovation is. If we think about perhaps when you were younger and then how that's evolved and developed throughout your career, how you connect with the idea of innovation.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I was lucky to be a young entrepreneur. I was part of the founding team of SciFest Dubai or the Dubai Science Festival. And this was back in high school. And, you know, we, our mission is to promote the sciences through the arts and to create a platform for STEAM education in, in Dubai. And we were one of the first um, entities in the region back in 2014 to, to launch this initiative. And a large part of the reason why my co-founder and I launched All Academy is because we saw that the traditional entities, traditional institutions and regulators and systems were really failing to truly innovate. And we kind of fell into this trap initially as well. So the very first two to three years of our academy, we were heavily extracurricular. We'd continue to you know, do a lot of incredible programming, won a lot of awards, teaching students these kinds of skills and mindsets. But at the end of the day, the students would go back into the existing system after spending an hour or a few hours with us, and then they'd go back to the traditional system of education. And Like many other ed tech companies, we weren't having the most amount of impact and innovation by simply having a model like this. So my, my hope for innovation in education is that people stop making incremental changes and improvements on the existing system but instead start building alternative systems and models. And that is where I'm highly passionate about alternative models of schooling and uh, alternative models of education. And by the way, in the innovation world, the, the word for this is called edge innovation as opposed to core innovation. So core innovation is when you do innovation from within. It's what innovation teams or leaders at schools are currently doing. Edge innovation is when you go outside of the system and try to design alternative solutions outside. And then that would then hopefully put pressure onto the core to change. When we refer to education, we're really referring to interwoven mix of many subsystems, right? Including universities and employers and high schools Mm -hmm. and parents. There are so many different stakeholders involved. So what that means is you have different layers of issues all interacting with one another and different nodes within the system have different roles to play. And anyone who goes out to start changing this education system quickly realizes that you can't tackle one node of the system at a time. For example, you can't start developing radically novel curriculum without upskilling millions of teachers. You can't change the assessment methods to become more project-based or micro-based without changing the university admission system. You know, you can't change the narratives around success in schools without educating parents on the changing narratives in the world at large. So all of these issues interact with each other. It's kind of like the classic chicken or egg causality dilemma, except that there are multiple chickens and there are multiple eggs here in this situation. So what we've seen is that, you know, from our perspective, we've had to do like all of the above. So we work with the regulators, we're in conversations with regulators and accreditors to start accrediting alternative models of schooling. We, over the course of the pandemic, did multiple webinar series for parents around the future of work and future of education to upskill parents. We even work with a lot of traditional school providers and their innovation teams in order to kind of start integrating some of our curriculum into existing systems. Ultimately, you know, you have to do, you have to be able to work with all of these stakeholders. I don't think change, true innovation in education happens in isolation. It happens through a paradigm shift of all of these different stakeholders working together towards a common
1: vision. Do you have any advice to educators listening in who, who might be interested in how can I help cultivate this idea of being an innovator is, is something for me? In their students. So rather than imposter syndrome, like really believing they can be an innovative thinker.
2: Yes, actually. In fact, we created a, a process, a weekend long workshop. It's like startup weekend, only focused on the developing didactical sequences or didactical practices that could change the classroom from teaching to creating learning scenarios. And so this weekend long, it's not, was not about creating devices or applications like Startup Weekend originally, but to creating different approaches to teaching specific curricular units. So if you have a process on how to innovate, and it doesn't need to be design thinking as, as an approach, but uh, you have to be very specific on how to, again, to see emerging problems, to refine problems, to, to create a unique value proposition. And all this can be adapted to the didactical practices within the classroom. So the idea is to hyper-locally change the classroom itself and, in this process, change the teacher's around your own classroom. Because innovation is an uh, ecosystemic problem. It's an ecosystemic process. So we have in this process of uh, getting those workshops out, getting uh, teachers to get together using WhatsApp groups or whatever uh, devices they had at hand and resources to share amongst themselves their innovative practices. So as a way, to build an ecosystem of innovation within schools and across schools.
1: And so, in order to empower the faculty, what are the actual actions that you're doing to create that sort of mindset shift, I suppose?
4: First thing first, we talk about the learning strategies and then we have our learning technologies. Traditionally, you find that, well, they work very closely together. The, The only thing is that our faculty, the way that they ask for work requests It tends to be uh, very siloed, tend to go to individual teams separately. So we didn't quite think that works well for the future. And we think that these two teams need to work even closer together. Yeah. And so we developed this cluster making these two teams even more closely integrated, we call that digital learning capability development. And so we have two big teams over here working closer together. Now we have been very busy in the last few months training our faculty members how to move their courses online uh, not just as a response to COVID-19 right because we know that everywhere all over the world the universities uh, had to do that uh, starting sometime in February, March, a lot of that has been happening. We find that we need to do more than just adapting to remote teaching being an institute of education we need to lead by example right. One very important part over here is that you know faculty members Yes, we have been doing blended learning for the longest time, but to move so quickly online, and, and we find that the faculty members can't depend on a small department like ours to do for a few hundred courses in, in one semester. So we need to multiply that very quickly. And so uh, a lot of trainings have been happening. We have been, the two teams have been working very closely together with our digital media specialists in simplifying a lot of all that complex design instruction, instructions of curriculum, really removing the fear factor and the kind of dependency on us. And uh, really, they have been doing a lot. Some of the kind of responses that comes back from faculty is that uh, it's very reassuring. They say things that the empowerment is fantastic, that uh, they never knew that they are able to do some of these things on their own. And they have been coming back to asking for more clinic sessions online, of course, uh, with our teams to do more of that. And uh, those are really things that uh, we have been aiming to do a lot in the past and COVID-19 it just so happens that uh, it just accelerates things a lot more than what we have uh, earlier planned.
0: Yeah well interestingly I I came into the world of technology as an engineer Um, so I was configuring PCs, building PCs, configuring mini systems then moving on to networking and then I went to work in America for a while um, as a product manager so I was able to take what I'd learned from being a guy in the field having to put this stuff together back into the product teams to say, actually, there's an easier way to do these things. And then conversely, I've returned back to the UK to to take those technologies into market now. So I think I have a great understanding of one, the constraints of how things are built, but two, a great understanding of the market itself. So when I talk about having the art of the possible conversation with our customers, part of that is about understanding what new innovations we've got that can help them but it's equally important that i'm out in the field listening to customers and looking at their challenges so i can then feed that information back into our product teams to say actually this is a really interesting problem i think we could solve with existing technology with just a small tweak so it's a very much a, a kind of uh, uh you know a back and forth arrangement
1: so it's a really interesting point because um yeah like you, i guess people think of innovation through different lenses and so you can think of technical innovation but there's also sort of the Business model innovation or pedagogical innovation, and it's not the CTO or the CEO or whether it's in you know school's network directors, but like it's actually being able to amalgamate all those skill sets.
0: 100%. I mean, we, we often find that the most rewarding conversations and the most learning we do is when we talk to companies and we get access to people outside of the IT teams. I mean, you know, we love talking to the IT teams, inevitably, they're the guys that are going to have to. Uh, implement and live with the technology that we provide and they're a great way to uh, to understand the customer's business but oftentimes IT departments are so under so much pressure to keep the lights on yeah um, that they you know they don't always have the time to go out and talk to the different lines of business the different departments to figure out what their new requirements are I mean there was there was a great analogy somebody shared with me once is when you're up to your waist in alligators it's very difficult to remember you're there to clean the swamp and I guess one of the things that we certainly try to help our IT, you know, uh, partners within our customers do is to, is to spread the, uh, the view of technology and the ideas and the things it can deliver and to engage with those different lines of business so we can find out, you know, what, what new challenges they might have that we can help them solve.
1: And to what extent do you think that creativity and innovation go hand in hand?
2: This is Ito, actually. You see, Ken Robson passed away, which is an unfortunate, very sad to our educational world and to actually to, to the world of innovation. And he was the person who bring several years ago to me this idea of creativity and innovation and how, of course, creativity was being killed, eliminated somehow in schools and at the university level. And creativity has many different aspects, and they are all foundations for innovation. So, even the idea of and these people doesn't talk a lot about this, but to be creative is also to be to be trustful, to mm-hmm. uh, to be trust in other people. So, why? Because you have to risk yourself to new kinds of experimenting the world. So, and to do this, to do this in schools, at the university level, in, in corporations, in the work world, you have to trust other people. So it's funny because it looks like two different things: <laughs> creativity and trustfulness. But in reality, in this is just an example of how creativity has many different parts to it. How trusting others are critical to innovation because you have to risk to try different paths, different processes, different models of thinking for a, a given problem.
1: I'm really inspired and energized by listening to you. And I'm if people are listening in and thinking the same but wondering can that be scaled up? Is there either a sort of coordination factor or an expense factor to scaling this up that would limit this from being accessible to a larger number of children, what would your answer be to that?
3: I think there is a number of things to keep in mind. One is we currently, you know, I always say this, we have the system as it exists right now, the, you know, the industrial or model, we've managed to scale that pretty fine, right? Mm-hmm. We have billions of students around the world that fundamentally follow it with a very similar kind of education, regardless of the differences. I think the challenge lies with upskilling masses of educators for a curriculum and for a model like this. That kind of a scale will take a very long time for that reason. But I also am optimistic because technology has a huge role to play right now in enabling that kind of scale. So that's been around our philosophy is we've been also building out an online side of this that would really make it highly scalable. Outside of education, there's an excellent book and resource called Exponential Organizations by Salim Ismail. And his team have actually built a framework of the 11 characteristics of highly scalable, highly radically innovative organizations. Hmm. Um, It includes everything from using dashboards and interfaces to algorithms and community engagement. These are based on actual evidence of how organizations have scaled. And we really think we need to start applying those similar philosophies into education. So imagine running a school as an exponential organization by leveraging the same framework that Facebook and Airbnb have applied to get to a large scale. So that's also been part of the conversation for scaling for us internally, is been integrating the characteristics of exponential organizations into how we run future learning hubs.
1: More than any other year in recent history, 2020 has seen innovation on a global scale as we adapt to a new set of circumstances. Okay, brilliant. And then, just generally speaking, how have you found 2020?
0: Well, in some ways, it's very similar to many other years. I've been working from home for the last 20 years, really, off and on. Um, so, so the whole idea of, you know, kind of sitting in front of your desk at home and being on conference calls and obviously more recently more video calls with your customers and your partners is nothing new to me. Obviously, what's very different is the fact that I would do that for some of the time and then I'd want to be out in front of customers, you know, visiting their premises, walking around their offices and the hospitals and the schools to kind of get a feel for, for some of their challenges that I haven't been able to do. So, so while, you know, I can understand some of the, the challenges people are having uh, working from home, um, even us seasoned home workers are feeling these challenges as well. And I think also a lot of the uncertainty around, well, what's coming next? I hear a lot of people talk about this term, the new normal. I'm not even sure we know what the new normal is yet, because this is a constantly evolving landscape of things that we're having to go through. So I guess part of my job as as art of the possible and, you know, as as, as bringing our innovations to customers is figuring out not only how can we use our technology to keep people working and operating keep their businesses moving how can we help them with their kind of safe return to the office or the schools or the workplaces Um, but also how can we help them innovate so that they can kind of climb their way out of this pit we're in at the moment where you know business is slowed down people are worried about spending money so how can we use technology to help them evolve into whatever the new normal becomes as we move out the other side of this
1: and and that's very interesting because I think you know, there's a human tendency to towards what's familiar and what feels safe. Um, so what would your advice be to, you know, when you're having those conversations with customers um, in terms of how to start that art of the possible and to think in innovative ways and to sort of build a, a structure around that so that it, it does become something that's achievable as well?
0: Absolutely. And you're right, you know, people tend to like to keep with the familiar. Um, interestingly what you know the whole kind of lockdown COVID thing has taught us is that some of the the ideas and some of the technologies and some of the ways of working that would have been off limits in the past unthinkable things to do actually suddenly become very easier to do and much more beneficial so for instance you know we've been helping customers where they have sectors of their workforce that were traditionally office-based Maybe call center operatives that would sit, you know, literally go into the call center and sit behind a desk on the phone all day. Now there are financial traders, for instance, that went to an office to do their trading in kind of the bull pit environment, and yet, as needs must, they've moved out of that environment. They've gone to work from home. So you've got call center operatives working from home, and you can sometimes hear kids in the background, which is lovely to hear. You know, financial traders, consultants reviewing x-rays and mri scans maybe they've had to self-isolate they're all able to operate at home almost as efficiently as they do in the office um so i think one of the pieces of advice i would give organizations is just because it's the way you've always done it doesn't mean to say it's going to be the way you always have to do it
1: fantastic and i mean what i'd love to ask you is what you're working on that you're excited about that's coming up but i mean there may be some limitations as to what you can share but if I were to ask you that question, you know, what can you can you share with us that you're developing and thinking about next, I suppose?
0: Yeah, so I, I guess there's three things. One is I always get excited when we make things faster, <laughs> faster performance, because we see this constant uh, seesaw between the performance of the devices people have in their hands and on their desktops and the speed that they can transmit that information across the Internet or across their networks to the servers. So every time we can make something faster, I get kind of excited. So uh, just over a year, actually 18 months ago, we introduced uh, a Wi-Fi 6 platform, which gives Wi-Fi four times the speed of the previous standard. Now, what's interesting for us is that we were able to deploy this technology ahead of most people having a device capable of supporting it, meaning that we've started to see people take up that capability to start to use that in anger over the last kind of 6 to 12 months. That's exciting. So like it when we make things faster, gives everybody a better experience. Um, The second one is is around security. Um, You know, the way we've connected to networks and the way we've built them has not really changed much in the past 20 years. Not really. Um, So I guess one of the things that excites me about what we're doing at the moment is we're changing the way people are able to deploy their infrastructure. From being, you configure it to do a specific job and then people attach to it and use it, to it being a blank canvas waiting for somebody to attach. Then we identify who they are and what it is they need to be able to do and then configure the network at the time they connect, which, of course, tremendously saves the amount of time for the IT teams in the deployment phase. Mm. It means they don't have to go to site quite as much. It means that if there's a problem, there's less things to sift through in a config to fix it. So it benefits a, a lot of people. It's a big change in the way we build networks. And I suppose the third area is how we're using location services to ensure a safe return to work. Uh, and for contact tracing capabilities. Now, interestingly, these location services are not new technologies. They've been around for quite some time. Certainly one of them, Wi-Fi location, has been used in retail for many, many years to identify how many people stood outside the window and how many people went in and how many people went from where they were buying things to the checkout. So, So this retail analytics piece, it's exactly the same technology we're now using to give students in universities and workers in office spaces a real-time view of well actually the library is quite busy now maybe I don't want to go yeah I mean we've all been on a train haven't we we've seen a little tv screen at the top showing us how busy the carriage is and maybe there's a carriage two or three along that's not so busy that same technology is being developed is being used in uh, in office space using wi-fi data to help us understand how busy places are and again that moves on to, well, if you know how many people are there, if you know who they are, you can start to do some contact tracing. So so these new uses of very well-established and existing technologies are also what excites me, because if it's existing technology, people can benefit from it much more quickly than if it was a brand-new technology. It started out as one university asked us if we could solve the problem where their students were complaining that they walked all the way across campus, from the halls of residence to the library, in the rain, and when they got there, there was nowhere to work. So suddenly this starts the flowing, You know, It starts thinking, well, actually, yeah, we can do that because we can count the number of people in the location because everyone's got a phone. So if we can anonymize that data and just use it as a people count, suddenly that becomes very useful data. Of course, 12 months on, you realize how dramatically more useful that data has become given the current situation we find ourselves in. But then you start to think, well, actually, if I know who you are, then I can start to create kind of contact tracing solutions to, to, to complement that. So it's yes, absolutely, it's a very exciting uh, evolution of that technology and evolution of the use case.
1: And, I mean, we're sort of seeing these huge paradigm shifts at the moment due to COVID and the and the effects of that on the one hand, but are we at risk of also sort of falling back on what we know? You know, what have you observed during the COVID pandemic? And do you have any thoughts on how that might play out over the next sort of, one to five years I suppose.
3: Oh absolutely you're right there is a real danger and there has been a lot of cases of um, teachers falling back to what we know so there's been a couple of realizations for me. I mean one my team and I had been advocating for moonshots in education for radical overhaul of the system Mm. And until a year ago, every the, the, the traditional response was, no, it, it, it's not practical. We have to move incrementally. You know, you got to work within the system. But I think if there's one thing we've learned in this last year is that global, rapid, true transformation in education is possible. I mean, the very fact that the United Arab Emirates upskilled and trained 22,000 teachers within a week on digital learning is a testament to that. Now, I'm not arguing that distance learning as we have it is the ideal form of education. In fact, there are many fundamental issues with it. But the point is that for better or worse, we realize that global change in education is possible. With the right kind of incentives, education providers, both public and private all around the world, are willing to set aside the old system and do things very differently. Now, the second thing I realized is, for a lot of schools and educators, and to some extent, this is understandable because it, you know this has taken all, all of us by surprise. But a lot of them are trying to repeat the same old pedagogies within the digital realm. So, you know, we work with a lot of students as per our program, and they're all you know enrolled in different schools. So, we hear a set of mixed reviews about how their distance learning experience is going. And many of them, it seems like, are within an experience where they're just doing lots of online lectures back to back, or it's the opposite, where they are just given an overwhelming amount of worksheets and assessments. And it seems like we're just trying to do the same thing that we did offline, but online. And you know, for people who say, oh, distance learning is really disengaging for students, it's really not exciting for them. I know I say the root of the problem isn't distance learning. The problem is the model that we had to begin with. The model was already based on irrelevant, outdated content. For many, it was already extremely uh, standardized and cookie cutter. It was already based on, in some cases, uninspiring teaching, incentivized simply by standardized assessments rather than curiosity on wonder. So we already had a broken system to begin with and digitized it, and now we've realized how disengaged Students are. At this point, we're just contrasting how we did things over the summer. So, we did a couple of cohorts of an online summer camp. And the goal of the summer camp was to prepare students for a post pandemic world. You know, half of our students were also coming from backgrounds where they were on financial aid at school and uh, received scholarships. And throughout the course of the 10 days, we covered areas such as preparing for the remote workforce, developing your emotional intelligence in a time of crisis, being able to tackle challenges through systems thinking and applying systems thinking to COVID-19 pandemic. So we created a whole novel curriculum that was actually relevant to students during such a time to use this as an opportunity for them to learn rather than fall back on their education. And at the same time, while the program was completely online, it was completely interactive and project-based. You know, we did a lot of breakout room activities and discussions. Students were developing creative projects throughout and sharing it with their peers. We We did multiple career stories where they got to hear from people into the workforce lots of games that we played and one-on-one mentorship sessions. So we completely reinvented the pedagogy to actually make it social and interactive and engaging, even if it is completely online. And that was really key. And I think that was a huge lesson for us that yes, it's absolutely possible to have inspiring, relevant, engaging distance learning, but you have to upgrade the content to something that students actually care about in a pandemic and you have to do it in a way that's engaging for them.
1: So, Going back to sort of education and and the average experience, if you will, of education and teaching and learning, what would you like to see change and, and how would you like to embed some of these ideas into an average student, if there is such a thing, into their experience within sort of the education system? What would you change?
2: Well, first of all, universities should stop using students to get papers done. (laughs) It's it's the other way around. Students should use the university to to see problems, refine problems, and build solutions. So it's like teachers are usually just uh, giving out knowledge when many times uh, students uh, do not know what that knowledge is for. And that's very frequent and unfortunate. So it's the other way around we should get students to uh, recognize problems. It's a very difficult matter actually, this particular point, because usually as teachers, we give problems to students, try solving with the the tools we teach. So this this, to me, it makes no sense. We actually should teach students to recognize where the problems are emerging. And this is very difficult because they have to refine the problem. So half of our course is actually trying to get students to refine problems so you can create solutions that are focused on problems. This is like design thinking all over, but in a process known as challenge-based learning. So every week students get a different perspective on the problem and the creation, the gradual creation of its solution. So they have created many different things uh, I can just, as uh, an example site, they make up, uh, well, it's not fake startups, but actually many of these groups end up at the tar- tech part being really startups. But they, these groups, they create so- real solutions, like BC Flow is one of these teams, they created a way people can ride bikes together through town because riding together is safer than alone by yourself and so they created an app that localized bikers going to the same directions and reunite them in the same route so they can ride together this is a kind of solution that has very many interesting implications on mobility on how cities are organized and is connected to the UN's sustainable goals for 2030, which is very interesting because they are solving local problems, but thinking globally.
1: How can we measure the impact of innovation and how can we start to break down how we think about innovation? Yeah, that's a great question.
3: Um, We do this, we hope to do this in a number of ways, but at the moment, our main focus and measure of impact is really the impact that the students go on to have on the world. So for our Learning Hub program, which was designed to really start testing alternative models of education, you know, students go through six months of interactive workshops, building core future fluencies, but they also embark on personalized learning pathways where they're matched with industry experts on various learning pathways and work on projects that better the world, and they acquire a whole number of skills they are working on these projects. For example, we had a pair of students who developed a device that would extract and purify water on Mars. One student actually developed a prototype of a wristband that would track seizures in epileptic patients and gather data analytics on what was triggering those seizures. Another student designed tiny homes. I actually learned a lot of architecture to develop tiny homes for be homeless so these are just a few examples but we've had you know dozens and dozens of such projects and for me one of the best measures of impact is this it's what the students go on to do to better the world and I think that's where education can really be a really powerful tool and that's fundamentally our philosophy our curriculum around curriculum design is we ask ourselves what kind of a world do we want to live in and how do we work backwards from there the last thing I'll add here on measuring impact is we also developed a novel like core curriculum at our academy called the Human Transcendence Index, and instead of measuring traditional test scores and exams, this index has been used to measure everything from emotional intelligence to blue sky thinking and moonshot thinking, conceptual skills, scientific thinking, analytical reasoning, and ultimately we're developing a whole set of assessments around each of those things. That would allow us to truly measure student learning as it correlates to human progress or human transcendence.
1: So that would be my first question so any examples of everyday innovation and then we could come back to you know some of the the bigger innovative thinkers that have helped sort of shape your worldview as well.
2: Absolutely, I mean we've been seeing throughout this course uh, lots of teams creating precisely that. Sometimes small things that will change people's lives, like this one I just told you about. Another one is an artifact that helps other people get around, not depending so much on others. So it's a device that tells your caretaker far away if you fall. So it's, it's a very simple piece of equipment with a, a, a few sensors, but connected to the internet so uh, people can follow your elderly parent or whoever and be warned by, by this equipment if something bad happens, if, if this person falls and everything. So this, this is a life-changing device for, for many people. So the thing is that if you go to the market, this particular device... Either is very, very expensive or it depends on a central call that you, you, the, the elderly must make and, and, and this gets in the way of, uh, of this equipment really being used by an old person. So our goal is to simplify the things, mm. building equipment, devices that can get to people in an easier way, cheaper way.
1: So sometimes it's simplicity and lowering cost. It's not always increasing technology or adding things. It can also be stripping back.
2: Absolutely, because actually a great uh, many deal of innovations come through the business model that's attached
0: to it. How can we measure innovation? Um, well, I used to, many, many years ago, I used to uh, work for a company called Bay Networks. Maybe some people here were would, would listening, and um we had a CEO at the time, a guy called Dave House, and he said the whole purpose of networking was to eliminate the constraints of distance and time. So, if if you wanted a measure of uh, of of success of what we do, I guess it, 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 you could look at it from the lens of well, how much time have I saved people? How much distance have I saved people having to travel? We all want to travel because we're social animals. At the end of the day, if I've saved you time, you know, if I can save my file to the file server in half the time i used to um if i have to spend less time figuring out how to use this piece of technology and connect to a network than i used to then that's a big benefit so i guess if we can measure it in terms of how much time um we've saved people and how much distance we've eliminated them needing to travel then maybe that has wider benefits for sustainability you know carbon footprints you know all those kind of things as well so maybe distance and time are two ways to measure
1: i absolutely love that and um Yeah I love the fact that you know you give it's the big picture stuff so sustainability etc but also the personal angst of watching a file save and you totally get that because yeah on a day-to-day level when you know these things start to get people down so if you can make it quick and seamless it really does affect people's uh, working lives I think so.
0: 100% yeah I mean you know people want to get on with using technology they don't want to have to spend time waiting for it to do its thing. Yeah. So if we can if we can eliminate that wait time, then we eliminate frustrations and, and we give people more time back in their day to do other better things.
1: What does all this mean for education and how can technology help?
0: Yeah, so I guess we have to think of education in the different kind of sectors, the, you know, years that we have. So you've got primary education where everybody's used to just going to the classroom to learn right very little in terms of distance learning or maybe a little bit of homework and you know logging onto some some websites to do some math homework and that stuff but most of the time you go to the classroom to learn and then of course you've got the, the the secondary and the sixth form kind of colleges slightly getting a little bit more autonomous um, a bit more distance learning was involved there and then of course you have got the universities where there was a lot of kind of self-paced uh, learning you'd go into your lectures and you'd, you'd go into the labs and do some work. So we've seen changes across all of these different sectors. I mean, I'll take higher education first in the universities. You know, for a lot of the students, it's, one, is about the learning, but two, it's about the experience. So, I mean, I, I have to feel sorry for some of the university students going into university for the first year this year, because freshers is a big part of that. So not being able to do that in the way that everyone's done it in the past maybe could be seen as a detriment. But on the other hand, maybe, it, maybe it's different, right? Maybe they spend more time... Engaging online, maybe they're better citizens online. But certainly, what does happen is that there are some things that you can learn from a distance that you traditionally wouldn't have done in the past. So, let me give you an example. So, if you're writing a document, researching on the internet, absolutely you can do that wherever you want. You don't even need to go to the library these days to do that kind of thing. But if you're going to use a lab or some equipment, things that weren't traditionally um, accessible remotely, then that becomes a bit of a challenge. So, we were certainly helping a few of our university customers extend secure access into their laboratories and indeed for some of the research projects because you know research money is, is, is a big part of university funding um, to help them continue that work for the students that couldn't go into the lab um, implementing systems so that they could have uh, social distancing within the labs right so you know you don't need to go to a classroom maybe you can work remotely but certainly if it's a laboratory with some specific equipment you need to maintain some controls and some contact tracing to know well Sadly, if somebody was to come back positive, um, who else has been in that location, that particular time? So, so those kind of problems being solved, and then you get to the, you know, can kind it of move down towards say primary education, and it's about, you know, one, how can we help the teachers uh, manage that environment more securely? You know, how can we uh, extend secure access to them so not only can they uh, provide that, you know, the teaching, but also how can they monitor the students in a more effective way?
2: In academia, we've been changing the way we teach. The university for so long, and actually very frequently today, is based on giving classes, on exposing knowledge. And this is not a good approach for learning, for building knowledge, new knowledge. So in academia at the university, we've been changing this, creating new ways of teaching, of actually developing learning scenarios which is uh, actually different of teaching. So at the university, we developed a method for teaching innovation amongst the students of coming from different areas, from psychology to design to computer science. Actually, we get students from all these departments together to develop projects based on their observations of society, of specific audiences, and they bring the problems, refine the problems, create solutions, following this challenge-based learning process that we've been refining over the last five years. And they come up with uh, real solutions for real problems problems in specific social audiences. So it's very interesting that uh, how much you you can get students to get involved when you really creating the conditions, the context, the innovative context for uh, students really get to work based on evidence, based on scientific knowledge. So at the university, we've been doing this for the last five years, and in my other uh, head, As an entrepreneur, I co-founded Joy Street, which is a net tech in Recife. It's uh, well-known in Brazil for developing game-based learning platforms. And there, our mission is to engage people, uh, especially students, but also workers in corporations, to get better involved, engaged in problems within their context, their learning context or work context, and this engagement motivate them to learn and to develop new perspectives about, about what, whatever they're doing. So we are devising and creating different approaches to get people engaged and self-motivated to solve problems.
1: A couple of things there. One is the mention of the sort of interdisciplinary approach and bringing people from different disciplines and different perspectives together. To rather than sort of saying there's one way, this is the way we solve a problem, actually just creating the right conditions, and and perhaps that being yes. where innovation happens. Have you seen this sort of play out? Obviously, recording this during the COVID pandemic. Have you seen any encouraging examples of innovation recently or in 2020 which perhaps have come out of this way of thinking of actually just reaching out to people from different disciplines to actually try and tackle an issue?
2: We've been actually promoting a series of events and calls for action here in Recife based on this, on this perspective of bringing different people from design, programming, developers and educators to think of this. Both in our companies, our tech park is, comprises a set of 350 different companies. So these companies are, are involved, very much engaged in this, in this kind of approach. But uh, our main goal is to, is to have students at the university to, to view the world as a set of complex problems that cannot be solved within only one perspective. So problems are multi-causal uh, or dynamic or open systems that they must be seen from different perspectives at once. So that's why we get them to collaborate with uh, uh, people from different areas. This is critical, actually, for building a different kind of society, more equal society. We are facing, as this sanitary emergency tells us, we're facing very complex and uh, huge problems. Uh, You know, climate emergencies is knocking on our door and we have to get uh, the young people prepared somehow to, uh, with the skills that get them to collaborate to think together to think differently to think innovatively
1: and, and you mentioned the the use of data as well could you expand slightly on how that's informing probably the course design but any other areas as well
4: yeah absolutely yeah so you see the, the data inform us about a lot about how some of these measures that we have put in place whether is it working whether, uh, which area that, the gaps that we have not previously addressed. And so, but the data needs to be dynamic, needs to come to us very quickly in time to guide our intervention program. So what we have done is that we have put in place a data visualization platform, which is very new as I speak to you yesterday. I was just uh, talking to our team members how to refine that so that it becomes more dynamic. We don't have to go through the usual, well, we we still need to fit in the data. We still need to have some form of survey or some kind of focus group discussion. But those data, once it comes in, we want to automate the process that it can quickly bring to our attention. Like a dashboard, able to use a a way of describing it. And uh, we can very quickly adjust because we want to customize this for different, what we call the academic group. I mean, it could be sciences and uh, humanities. They have very different needs when it comes to uh, training. So we want to be able to respond to that kind of needs. So we have that kind of setup over here. And there's another one is that uh, which we have done come close to almost a year is that we deploy a conversational AI, or uh, in simpler terms, some people call that uh, chatbots. Chatbots was used very commonly in many places when it comes to providing performance support or even some kind of IT help desk support. But for our case, that we are looking at how can we help our faculty get access to a lot of these kind of resources that my predecessors, just not only me, we have been around for quite some time. It's just it's so diffi- difficult for them to navigate and get to what they want to. and So often they have to call somebody, then talk to somebody. But we can't be there 24-7. So we find that if we have e-specialists we call, to 24-7 be able to serve the needs of our faculty members and be very interactive with the faculty, uh, then that would be fantastic. So that idea came about. And th- there's a confluence of many factors because by that time, we find that the technologies uh, of chatbot has matured so much that we can really maximize that to our advantage. So that came to fruition when we have uh, what <laughs> we call uh, e learning uh, specialist, by we we lovingly call uh, Tessa, and so Tessa was very good in providing that talking to student teachers because we, we train teachers over here, where to go for the uh, learning theories, uh, the learning design, what kind of technology best fit the kind of design they are looking for. Uh, so that that was really quite a revelation to us, and so with that we are really powering away to look at how to move on to create. If, if you like, a smarter Tessa uh, as a smart virtual teaching assistant for our faculty. And of course, we also want Tessa to have a different uh, twin sister that can do as a learning companion for our students. And so it works both ways. And uh, to get to that part over there, we really need to look at expanding the kind of use of data, the way that we collect and visualize those data and to help, you know, creating Smarter tests uh, in years to come. So that's some of the thoughts we have, some plans we have in place.
0: And, and and a lot of these solutions evolve around capturing data. I mean, I guess internally we have this phrase: "data is the new currency." Because when you've got data about something, you can look at it through so many different lenses, and you know, kind of twiddle it and tweak it um, to kind of provide so many different insights as to what you know one people want to do, but maybe what challenges people are having uh, connecting to things. And we're starting to apply a lot of Artificial intelligence and machine learning to this data now to try and spot patterns and anomalies that will help us solve either networking problems or indeed you know provide uh, new opportunities for our customers
1: and are there any times when innovation isn't appropriate that you can think of?
3: I think it depends on how you define innovation right I think If innovation is our capacity to solve problems, if it's about constantly improving experiences and systems by radical leaps and bounds, I really can't think of any. I think that I think that we should never be static. We should be constantly improving and learning. It's an it's an experience and a journey rather than an endpoint.
1: Yeah, I love that. um people often talk about digital transformation and obviously actually it's just a continual process so the technology is never going to stand still and the need to adjust things doesn't either so love that
3: absolutely and i think that applies to curriculum as well we for the most part the curriculum we developed at its core it's pretty much the same as it was a couple of decades ago if not more and the world is never the same you know we're seeing the rise and fall of industries due to accelerating change because of exponential technologies the workforce is rapidly shifting and there is a demand for a whole unique set of skill sets now that we didn't necessarily need a few decades ago so curriculum and content itself should be changing every few months um, every year at at least you know and that's another area where we've remained static on in, in
1: education so you talked about the so roger's idea of divine dissatisfaction with what's around us and I love that phrase. feels great. But also, is it the case that quite a lot of our innovation globally is sometimes geared towards things that are quite peripheral? So if you think about, I don't know, creating filters for social me- media or other kind of entertainment, how do we make innovation or create innovation and sort of gear it more towards some of our biggest problems or most impactful areas so for example education or healthcare. or is there a need to kind of steer more innovation towards those areas?
4: Thanks Sophie I think this is a wonderful question Yeah, I, I think by and large when you look at innovation when people talk generally about innovations it's very much revolving around the business aspect of the industry because economic is such a huge part of our life. But increasingly, I think there are various groups that have come to realise that economic cannot be the only driving force when it comes to putting our resources into innovation. The environment is important. It's gaining a lot of... uh, I mean, we have been talking about it for decades and nobody has actually acted with it. And uh, in fact, there were a lot of opposing forces for various interests in that. And increasingly, I think it's getting a lot more traction now although they are still opposing forces to even to derail some of the earlier gains. But I think the technology that enable a lot of dissemination of information, uh, particularly the social media, has helped a lot in getting this, you know, such important information. So it's like, uh, it, it becomes essential right now for us to move, not just about economic innovations, but it's also about, other important areas like environment and of course the other one that we just mentioned about education. So technology by itself, when we talk about learning technology, it's not a special class of technology on its own that is just for education. A lot of the kind of uh, learning technologies that uh, we use in education today, uh, it comes from other areas as well. And some of these technologies just lend itself to teaching and learning i give you one example about this will be social media. Social media is created as a kind of consumption, right? So for like the likes of Facebook, the likes of Instagram, and now we have this craze about TikTok. Well, that's quite controversial. I'm having problem in America. But with that, they, they, they enable people to come together to consume, to enjoy it's as, a, as a form of entertainment. But it's also enable a place for people uh, exchange of ideas, right? And with that, that has spilled over to, to education. So when it comes to designing, what I mentioned to you earlier about using WeWorks is that the whole platform, we want to make it social media-like, right? So with that idea that flows over here is that we, people like to be connected. People like to be connected in physical, uh, face-to-face terms. And if they, if they are not being together face-to-face, the technology enables that for us to still stay connected. And if you build a platform that is Instagram-like, is Facebook-like, and uh, the ease of, uh, of getting notification and responding to uh, a fellow uh, classmate's thoughts about a certain things, it could be something that the person has been thinking about the whole day and then suddenly there's a Eureka and then started posting that uh, in, in their platform. And and that enable that kind of uh, learning uh, and uh, what we call the co-construction of knowledge to happen all the time
1: that's almost everything for this episode before we go some final recommendations on how to approach innovation to make it more manageable
0: I think oftentimes it's not necessarily a conversation that marks we need to build a new technology what a great idea I've got for that because you know that that is a very long-term play um, you know the time from the idea to being able to benefit from the technology you develop as a result is is, is quite long what excites me most is when I have conversations that I can see how there's an existing technology we've used for some time that can be applied to that particular problem. You know, we we say looking at it through a different lens.
1: I guess part of innovation is having these different ways of articulating how people work together and how innovation comes into being. And so I love that discussion around distributed cognition and connectivism. And I was interested to, to know why you, the idea of Education 4.0 that you're, you're not so keen on that? Because I think that could, could be quite interesting, like what formulated your thoughts on that as well.
4: Yeah. So uh, one thing we want to be very clear over here, because in, in NIE, we are in the business of education. So a lot of things that happened in the last few years, they, all the talks about uh, industrial 4.0, yes, it's very exciting. It's very scary to some people. And then uh, it's very easy to jump on a bandwagon because there's an industrial 4.0. So there should be an education 4.0 as a response to all those changes. But the truth of the matter is a lot of things that come up that is being discussed in the World Economic Forum about certain skill set that a human needs to have by 2020. There are certain skill sets they talk about. Well, people need to be more creative. People need to be... Actually... It is not new. Uh, if you have a review about what the education researcher has been producing in the literature, even in the late 90s, before the 21st century, lots of the kind of skill that has been talked about. Even the Ministry of Singapore, we have the 21st century core competency uh, for students for learning. It has been there since 1997. <laughs> they are just different permutations of newer versions of. 21st century skills. So that, that's the reason why I, as an institution, we are not that keen to just jump on a bandwagon and hang on to a certain terms to make it sound, well, I, I'm not accusing anybody for trying to do that, but we just want to be very careful about just coming up for a sexy label for, for certain things that uh, the educators have been doing, have been working very hard on. But what I do think is good about the Industrial 4.0 is that it brings to attention the urgency of the matter that for us to uh, not to be afraid of digital technology, but import, more importantly, is to embrace it and to make a very good use of it, to advance newer boundaries in learning. So this is what we do uh, over here. We always believe in this, what we call the research or rather the theory and practice mixes. So a lot of it comes from research and then they will inform theory, the theory and practices. So if we would talk about Education 4.0, we will, we will question what exactly do you mean by Education 4.0? It is just driven by technology, but about the human aspect of things. So a lot of that is, is very complex and we, we would like to be more circumspect when it comes to coming up with a term to describe that.
1: Thanks so much to our guests this week, some of my personal takeaways were remembering to step back and create the space for innovation, to be careful not to replicate poor design by simply digitising it, to be cognizant of the ecosystemic nature of innovation, i.e. try not to do it all yourself, and to not get caught up in fadism, so think practically How will this save me time, for example, or save me a journey that I don't need to make or allow me to have more time to focus on more important things? Thanks again to Bet for supporting this series and Aruba for supporting this episode. For all the show notes, including resource and reading recommendations from our guests, it's theedtechpodcast.com. We always love to hear from you. If you don't want to leave us a voicemail, you can tweet us using the hashtag edtechpod and bet 2021 or you can leave us a review wherever you listen in. And for more content, check out the BET website and hub where you can find out more about innovation and some of the things that we've got coming up on the podcast as well. That's all for now. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.